Let's have an added word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that the story of Jesus really points us to you. There are a lot of different distortions, a lot of pictures of God out there. We pray now as we see the humble nature of not only our Savior, but our Father. We pray that you will help us to be more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can imagine the horror of the angels back when the plan of salvation was first revealed to them. Can you imagine? Here they are. They've, they've seen the creation of our world. They've sang with joy. And then they see the fall of humanity, followed by God revealing a plan to save us. How he would send somebody that would crush the head of the serpent, but would also be wounded. Can you imagine the angels, as they found out, and, re- and it was revealed to them, that this was going to be Jesus, who was going to come and be literally, literally crushed would be wounded for us as he crushes the serpent. And yes, the song said, as we sang our opening song, they they sang glory to God in the highest when Jesus eventually did become human. But imagine in their minds the condescension of Jesus to become that way. for For the creator of the universe, the one who was always giving, now he's even willing to give all of himself, risk himself to save each one of us. You know, last week we talked about how the whole Old Testament points us to the reality that God comes down to his people. You find him even after the fall, coming to them in the cool of the day, trying to to woo them back, even though he stations angels at the gate and a flaming sword there. Who is the one who stations them personally? It's none other than the Lord himself. And he watches them leave that garden. And we know in Isaiah 53 that eventually this same God would become a man of sorrows. But imagine the sorrow as he sees Adam and Eve leave. Even though he knows it's going to take a great cost, it's going to be a great cost to himself to bring them back, and that that there will be a chance for them to come back, all those who have fallen to come back. Yet imagine the sorrow on his heart as that happens. And you get down to Malachi's prophecy, the last prophecy of the Old Testament, where it describes in detail that there would be coming somebody who basically would restore the law of Moses and who would come like an Elijah figure. And we find John the Baptist fit that picture, but most importantly, Jesus fit both of those descriptions. He restored the law. He was the greater Moses, and yet he was also the one. He was also the one that was restoring the hearts of the children to their fathers and the fathers to their children. And so we find throughout the whole Bible, God coming down, laying it down, if you will, his divinity, at the incarnation, we call it, or when he became human. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Him even dwelling among us, to me, is, is just humbling that he'd be willing to do that, but to become one of us. I know there was some discussion in some of the Sabbath schools about this, but as he becomes one of us, imagine the humility to do that. Not that he's looking for brownie points, not that he's looking for you to say, oh, how glorious. He is doing it because he loves you and loves me. He is willing to to serve in that way to the utmost because he loves us. And so he becomes flesh. He dwells among us. Philippians 2, we looked at last week. It says, then let this mind be in you. That same mind of humility. That same mind that basically fills the whole universe. We think of ourselves primarily when we think of the story of Jesus. But imagine the whole universe besides planet Earth being in one accord being of the same mind, being of the same humbleness, the, the willingness to serve each other. I don't think there's ever anybody that's saying, I don't want to do that for you and, and the rest of the universe. We have that selfishness here. This same mind of Jesus that in essence dwells throughout the universe, 
which was in Jesus Christ himself, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He did not consider it something to hold on to, to remain equal with God. He actually was willing to let go of that, if need be, to save us. It says he made himself at no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. That is what we call servant leadership. And some people would stop there and say, well, we really don't need to physically express that. We, we can just know the concept. But as we look at the life of Jesus, we see he not only expresses and shows this, but he physically does things for people around him. We're going to come to one of those in a few moments. He was fashioned as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him. So he's humbled, and yet then he's exalted. Same thing can happen for each one of us. We can humble ourselves, and in that humbleness, God actually, out of that weakness, out of that willingness to, to basically put our own self-will down, he lifts us up. And he gives Jesus a name which is above every name, that name that we pray and that name that we cast out demons and that name that we go about doing the miracles of Jesus, and that's the name he gives him, this name. That is the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this whole process, this whole plan of salvation, from start to finish, was meant to show his great love for us, was meant to show that he, even though there's lots of distortions of him, he is worthy for us to bow down before It's kind of like when that child finally realizes the, the depth of what you have done for them. Whether you've borne that child into the world as a mother, whether you've cared for that child, nurtured that child, provided for that child as a father. We had Father's Day not too long ago. That whole realization that dawns on that child of yours, when that happens and, and you realize that they know what you have gone through to actually help them and be the person they are to be today, that feeling that you have inside, is that like, oh, look at me? I'm doing so. It's more of a sense of God. They actually see what, that I care for them and love for them the way you love me. That's, that's a humbling experience for, for you to have that as a parent or as someone who's around children or somebody maybe who's influenced somebody else in your life and, you, and they, they realize maybe what you've gone through. It's not like you're seeking glory. It's that it's the Father who's behind the scenes in this whole story just wanting his children to know that he cares for them dearly. And so as I read this text, especially verse 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, that's in heaven and in earth, and that every, even death itself, the things under the earth, or you get to this idea of the, even the grave itself can, will, will basically bow, that every tongue should, or the forces of darkness, the things that they've claimed, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How do I bow my knee how do I confess him today? Now, you know that's in various ways. You can fill in the blank as to what you do. But I believe that there Jesus was, laying down his crown of, if you will, kingly authority when he becomes human, because he basically fashions himself in the likeness of man, willing to humble himself, even basically lay aside, if, if need be, divinity to become one of us. But not only that, he lays down the crown in humility. And how do I know that? Well, as I look at the Bible, I do realize I'm of eternal value to him. I do see that he's willing to do all that for me. 
I know that he became that human being. I know that he went from being the monarch of the universe, basically, to becoming one of us so that he could be the prince of peace of each one of our hearts. I know that he gets to the crown of thorns. And it's amazing how we as a human race, the, in our darkness of that moment, we lay upon him a crown of thorns when he is worthy of so much more. If that is not a humble person who will not strike back, and I know, Sometimes, even in our sicknesses and our pains, we, we say, well, I'm just kind of not feeling too good right now. That's why I'm angry, right? Or you, you know, We have these human excuses for our... Can you imagine being the savior of the universe and they're beating you and they're spitting upon you and you, you, you could just usher in a whole army of angels if you wanted to, just by a single thought. And yet you choose not to do it at every single step of the journey, even to the point where they take that crown of thorns and you know, you know that you're willing to take that crown of thorns so they could have a crown of glory. I wish they could see it. I wish they, you have those thoughts and, and they crunch that down upon you and pierce your brow. You don't strike back. You don't say a word. You don't cuss and carry on like the thieves next to you. That's humbleness. That's the mind of Christ that we're supposed to have. And long before we even get to the cross, I mean, that shows we're of eternal value, but it, before that, he does something to show the full extent of his love. And he says there's something we can do to humble ourselves, to show that we want him to rule our lives and to bow before the king. And that's our FBI answer for the young people who are following along in their sheet. It's in John chapter 13. I invite everybody here to turn into your Bibles if you'd like to. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. We'll spend our time here for a few moments before we consider how we can do this ourselves. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Look at the mind of Christ. How he not only lays down his crown of kingly authority to become human, but he also lays it down in humility. John chapter 13, verse 1. Here it is just before the Passover feast. That thing is loaded right there. Just that idea there. Because if you begin to research the other accounts, you know that his disciples were supposed to make preparations for the Passover. Okay, so there's a lot behind that that we could get into. How at this very point in the story, they should have made provisions for a servant. They should have made provisions for the food. All these different things that go into the Passover feast, they were to make preparations for it. They were to secure a location. And if you remember the story, there was a certain man they were supposed to go to and, and say the Lord needs it and all this. And so... The disciples were supposed to have been ready at this point for this occasion. But as you keep reading the story, and as I keep reading the story, imagine here we come to a meal together, and somebody has fallen short. Maybe they haven't done exactly what uh, Jesus had asked them to do, for instance, getting the servant to wash the feet. And it dawns on you <laughs> as you're partway through, the, as you're getting into the meal. It even talks about another account, they were, they're eating, so they, they've, they've missed their protocol. They should have had the foot washing first before they even got into the eating part. And you're in this, and, and it, it hits you with horror that you've forgotten to get a servant. Now imagine being that disciple as you read this story. And how Jesus not only just does the role of that servant, but he covers your shortcoming. So let's read it with that in mind. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Showed it to them. Here they are. They, as I read the other Gospels, they're saying who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're arguing amongst themselves. They haven't t- making provisions. Imagine them having that discussion, who's greatest, and you're the one who forgot that one provision, so you know you're not, right? So it, this is all going on there. And nobody wants to take on the role of the servant. And so what does Jesus do? He's, he's watching all of this. He sees all of this, and he begins to show them something. And why didn't he just tell them? You know, send them an email, text message, or whatever, you know, like we would do now. He shows them something. Because he knows that here he is, he's been preaching for three and a half years and healing and all of this, and, and he knows at this point, you know what? It's got to be actions. They have to see this. And these actions are going to speak louder than the words that I could convey to them at this point. And he knows that. And he knows he's going to go to the Father, so he says, I'm going to show them the full extent of my love. I am not just God willing to become human. I am willing to serve them and cover their iniquities and their shortcomings. Out of the whole discussion of who's greatest, who was the greatest? He was. And yet, he lays down that right to claim it. We find the evening with meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So the devil's there in that meeting. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So how does he show his full extent of his love? He got up from the meal. From the meal. They're already sitting, sitting, sitting down to take this meal. No one else is willing to do it. He gets up. He takes off his outer clothing, this outer robe. So he's got some clothing on, but he's got this underclothing. He wraps himself in a towel around his waist. Imagine each movement as it's taking place. Him standing up as everybody else is reclining and eating. I mean, they're going to notice that right away. Does he not like the food? Is it, whoever did, did the preparations. He's standing up. Is he going to say something? Is he going to go out and heal somebody? What is, what is he doing? He's standing up, and he sheds his outer robe, and then he takes this, these in- instruments. Obviously, you know, it seems like these implements of servanthood were sitting there nearby, the towel and the basin. It, it, everybody, anybody else could have taken them. Nobody else is even approaching them. Imagine each step. I don't know how far it was away from where Jesus was at, but he gets up from the table and doesn't go do what they think the Messiah ought to do. He walks towards the very things that they won't even approach. And he takes that towel. He pours water into the basin. They haven't even poured water into the basin. I mean, this, this this story gets worse and worse as I read it each time. I'm thinking, wow, this, but there I am, right? He pours water into a basin, begins to wash his disciples' feet. So imagine there it is. There, there are those implements of servanthood right there in the room. They've obviously prepared that much. They didn't get the servant to come and do it. None of them want to do it. They've been arguing who's greatest in the, hev- in the kingdom of heaven and who's going to be sitting at his right and his left. Who knows? You can fill in the blanks there. And he not only gets up and walks towards the very things that they're avoiding, but he begins to pour the water and then imagine their horror as he comes to each one of them with dirt encrusted feet, removes their sandals if they haven't been removed already, and begins to wash away the very filth that they don't want to wash away from each other. I was reading an interesting 
comment. This is on Esword, the People's New Testament. Something more than ordinary must have caused so remarkable an act. No one would condescend to the menial but needful duty. But the Lord, full of conscious divinity. How do we know that? Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from the Father and was returning to God. He's conscious of the fact that He is above this whole situation, that He is going back to the Father. That he, what's He going to be? He's going to be crowned, if you will. He's going to have the angels proclaim beautiful, glorious songs, how He's conquered sin. So He has conscious divinity as He does this. That's, is, that is what really makes this an amazing account. He knows that He is above all. And He's going back to the Father to be there again. He girds on the towel. He begins the office which they refuse to do. A rebuke to their ambitious strife far more powerful than words could have spoken. Such a rebuke that never again, and I've looked, confirmed this commentary whether it was true or not, it says, never again do we see a hint of the old question, who should be greatest? I mean, this was an exclamation point mark from heaven itself, this action that spoke basically the whole plan of salvation, which says, you need to be cleansed by me. So he not only laid down his crown of, of glory, if you will, to become human, but now he, he lays it down in humility and shows us what he is willing to do so we can realize not only his love for us, but the Father's love for us. So we can lay down the crown now, that's my conclusion from this text, in humility, in preparation for laying it down in his presence. Because I don't know about you, but when I get before the throne of Jesus, when he, when he calls me, if I die, he calls me by name out of that grave. When he conquers the grave for me. When, when he, if I don't die and I go up and I go up and meet my loved ones in the clouds, imagine just the magnitude of being in his presence and he bestows upon you the crown of life, this, this, this crown of glory. And you know you're not worthy. You know you were one of the ones who probably wouldn't have made preparations for that event or maybe you were one of the ones who were claiming you'd be greatest in the kingdom of God. And, and You see yourself in the story. You know you're one of those disciples. What are you going to do with that crown? I mean, it's only by his goodness and his mercy and his grace that you're there. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be on the ground. Well, that's not always the case in this story, though, because as we keep reading, he comes to Simon Peter who says, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And his friend John writes it down for us. He will understand. He will understand. Peter, who's the one who we find typically takes three strikes before he, three knocks aside the head before he gets something. You know, three, and you get the book of Acts, even later on, it takes three men appearing at three in the afternoon, you know, and this vision comes down three times. So you, you find, here's Peter, the one who, who doesn't get it here again. I think he, he will get it later, Jesus says. And Peter says to him, because he's not realizing it, no, you shall never wash my feet. Well, Peter, you didn't get up and get the basin yourself. I mean, here's Peter who wasn't willing to humble himself and wash everybody else's feet, and yet he's willing to stop Jesus there. I think it's a feeling of unworthiness, and maybe it's a sense of overwhelmingness that the Lord himself would do this. He's the one who did confess, you know, surely you're the Christ. 
So he knows that he's not worthy in a way, but Jesus wants him to go undergo this as well. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That's a, a statement that's basically saying, you won't be a part with me at all. Some rabbis would say things like that to some of their disciples who, who wouldn't make it. But as you look at this, he's hoping Peter will get it. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean. He knows Peter's heart. He knows the disciples deep down have that love for him. All except for one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Physically, was everybody clean? Yes, they were all washed. I mean, you find him, it mentions him washing his disciples' feet when he had finished washing their feet, verse 12. So who are they? It's, it's the disciples. Unless Judas got out of there before that happened, we find Jesus washes their feet, all of them. But they're not clean inside, all of them. One of them is not. And as I thought of today, I thought, I just hope, and I'm spending my time in my devotions this morning, Lord, throughout the week as well, I don't want to go through the motions like Judas did. I mean, you could literally be washed by the hands of Jesus. None of us are him. I mean, he works through us, yes. He, he, he dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, but we're not Jesus. And yet we go through foot washing and through the emblems, and I just hope that, as I was thinking about today, I won't go through the motions and just have it be a physical act that doesn't touch me. A physical act that leaves me unclean. Especially when the Lord himself promises that he, in essence, is here with us when we do this. He says, I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of this vine of this cup until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He, he, every time we do this, we are engaging with him in that promise. He, he, he invites us, really, to by faith partake with him and look forward to his return. And so, as I go through this, I don't want to be the one, one of the ones who would just, yeah, let's go back there and get my feet washed and kind of just get, check that one off and go on down. I don't want to be that way. I want to be maybe like John here, who was so amazed by this that later he writes it down. And can you imagine, as you were writing this down, or having this written down, all the thoughts that would come to your mind about how humble Jesus was that he would do that for me. It obviously spoke volumes to them because here it is in our text this many years later. And when he'd finished washing their feet, verse 12, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. You could probably hear a pen drop. You could see all eyes on him. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. You could pause right there and just play on the idea of I am. I am the God who made this world. I am the God who formed Adam and Eve of the dust of the ground and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. I am. That was the God who was there with Moses in the wilderness and gave the Ten Commandments. I, you know, you just keep on going down through. This is him. Not just Lord and teacher, but the I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed 
if you do them. Makarion, we get the same idea of blessed or happy Sabbath, right? Blessed day. Blessed will you be if you do these things. So as I think of Jesus becoming one of us, that's humbling enough, but then washing us. And next week we'll get more, a couple weeks later we'll get into more of the crucifixion. How that's even more humbling for the Savior. I believe we can lay down our crowns now in preparation for laying them down at his feet in the future. We can humbly lay them down now in preparation for laying them down at his feet in the future. And really all we're doing then is what Jesus would do. There's no glory to us. It's all glory to him because he's the one who prompts that. And so we're going to be preparing our hearts for what is coming, his return. And if I read my Bible correctly, the book of Luke describes that at some point he will serve us again. At some point he will gird on the, the role of a servant again. If you want confirmation of that, all you've got to do is go to Luke chapter 12, verse 36. Mark it down, read it on your own. Jesus basically prepares a meal and serves the ones that should be serving him. And so we should begin laying our crowns down now in preparation for that day when he decides in his own humility to serve us again, to bring us into that meal with him. The appearing is really close, isn't it? I found this picture. I thought it was interesting. His return is closer than we think. Kind of like looking in the mirror. Every time I look in the mirror after I saw this picture, I think of his soon return. I think of all this history that's taken place behind me and look, this event is closer than it appears, isn't it? None of us, humanly speaking, even have an idea of the day or the hour of the Lord's return. It could happen at any moment. But if he were to come today, I would like to have my heart humbly laid before him. And so if you've never participated in foot washing, I would encourage you to do it. I know that there are some who say it's just a symbol, you know, so we don't have to do it. But there's something about the act. He uses the word blessed when he says we are blessed if we do these things, if we follow his example. It's the same type of idea as baptism. You know, Jesus is already baptized. Why should I be baptized? You could use that argument and, and say, well, reverse it, right? Am I better than my Savior that I shouldn't do what he has done? It humbles us to do these things. It humbles us to realize that he has washed our sins away and then he has prepared us a place at the table. It's even more humbling to receive that. And so I invite you to, if you're a Bible-believing Christian who loves Jesus as your Savior and you've never experienced foot washing, then please do that. And if you have experienced it, then take it to heart and don't just go through the motions. Let's, let's lay it down before Jesus. There's a beautiful song that we're going to use to prepare for this time. And it's, it's called, uh, basically, Once and for All. It's by Lauren Daigle. It's piano and her voice playing. And as we prepare our hearts for foot washing and for the emblems, I want to invite you to lay down anything that would stand between you and the Lord. And so I'm going to ask our AV team to play this as I take you through the slides. And if you'd like to kneel with me as we hear this song, then please do that.
Father, we're thankful for how Jesus not only became one of us, as humbling as that was, but he also showed us the full extent of your love and his love when he laid down 
all pretense of greatness to serve us. And yet he is worthy and you are worthy. So we're thankful for your humility. We're thankful of the Godhead's willingness to lay down the crown in humility. Help us do the same today, this morning, as we do this foot washing, as we prepare our hearts for that beautiful table you prepared for us and guide us to see clearly your plan of salvation and the kingdoms that we need to lay down so that you can welcome us into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name.